Top of the morning to you. Happy New Year. Those who were here the first hour had to uh, warm up because the uh, heating went off during the night, but uh, Pastor John Van Gelderen gave us a stirring message that warmed our hearts, and uh, the temperature's coming up here in the room as well. Um, my name is John Woodward. It's so good to be with you for these series of meetings. My wife, Linda, is here with me also. Linda, would you stand and wave? <laughs> and uh, um, Linda's first time in Ireland, my second time. Wonderful to be here with you. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 11, the last few verses of Matthew 11. And my role in these meetings is to illustrate uh, the biblical preaching you're hearing from Brother Van Gelderen, um, and show you how this applies in personal ministry, show you how we have seen at Grace Fellowship International um, the practicality of a Christ-centered counseling process that can give not just uh, temporary improvement, but really transformational change when we take this message of victorious living and apply it to the, the heart of the problem, which is usually a problem of the heart. Um, just a little bit about my um, testimony. I mentioned in Sunday school yesterday that I was raised in a Christian home. Um, the oldest of four children received Christ as my Savior as a young boy. My teenage years, um, very involved in, in sports and music and other things, none of those things were wrong other than the fact that it really eclipsed uh, the importance of my spiritual growth. So I would pick up my Bible on my way to church on Sunday, and that was about it. That led to really um, me doubting my salvation and being very lukewarm as a believer until my mother contracted cancer. During her battle with cancer, it really caused me to reevaluate my priorities, my spiritual life, and that led for me actually to uh, take them up on an offer to go to a Bible college for a year because they wanted me to have a foundation for my future life through verifying my Christian faith. And during that year, not only did I uh, became, become absolutely convinced that the Bible is God's word uh, and totally reliable, but I got the assurance of my salvation and also responded through a, a total commitment of my life to the Lord. And that led for me uh, the next year to join a Christian music group where I actually met Linda, who was from a different state. She's from Pennsylvania in the U.S. I was from New Jersey and later from Georgia. So that's how we met. That's how I first uh, visited the Emerald Isle here back in 1976, a long time ago as a teenager. Um, and then went to Bible college and seminary. Then God called us to Quebec, Canada, where I was an associate pastor in Montreal for seven years. That's where I came across the diagrams we're going to be uh, walking through together and uh, in Handbook to Happiness. And uh, after those seven years, moved to Ontario, Canada, where I was a pastor for a dozen years at a church there. Uh, north of Niagara Falls, um, and I uh, really saw God use the Christ-centered counseling there, which led uh, to uh, me joining Charles Solomon at Grace Fellowship for the last 15 years to do a biblical counseling and training uh, in the U.S. and other countries. So it's really a delight to be with you this morning. In Matthew chapter 11, we have a wonderful invitation by our Lord Jesus. And it ends with these uh, words in verse 28, Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Shall we pray? Lord, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you would use this session to encourage us to see the practicality of this message in our own life and how we can help others. And we thank you so much for Christ being our source of soul rest as well as eternal life. And we pray your blessing in his precious name. Amen. During my time as a pastor, people would come with uh, their needs in terms of their marriage, their personal life, their individual struggles. And of course, we have our own struggles, but uh, in pastoral ministry, you're particularly wanting to encourage others to come to you. And I had uh, four years of Bible college, three years of cemetery, I mean seminary, <clears throat> and uh, a lot of information, a lot of theology. But I noticed that when it came to actually helping people with serious problems, uh, I was coming up short. I was uh, quite discouraged. I remember one time uh, a couple in my office having a full-blown argument, and uh, I just felt totally out of control. I, I was thinking to myself, excuse me, could I diagram Ephesians 5 for you? And just didn't work, you know? Um, could I be a referee? And, and I, I just couldn't uh, find a solution to how this couple could get um, disconnected from being enmeshed in their personal conflicts. Even though I could tell them what to do, um, I wasn't able to show them how to tap into the power that we've been hearing about to actually implement that in their, in their marriage. Well, I came across a book called Handbook to Happiness, and uh, chapter two is condensed into a little tract here. And if you didn't get one of these, uh, we also have those in the back for you to pick up a copy of this. And it gives you a summary of what I'll be talking about. But as I read that book, I noticed that it was showing how to take the message of the victorious life and relate it to Christian counseling. Well, God had been working in my life through reading Hudson Taylor's biography. I saw how he had been a missionary in China for 15 years. Then God opened his eyes to the truth of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I, I, I knew that that truth resonated in my own heart, that I needed to get a hold of that. I went to Indonesia with a missionary who talked about his transformational change by tapping into the message we've been hearing about. And then a, me, a minister from England coming, talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, so I was starting to grasp more and more this message, but then when I came across Handbook to Happiness, from which these diagrams are taken, I saw a step-by-step process how it's related to pastoral counseling. I remember the first time I actually shared these diagrams with someone. It was a pastor's daughter, about 21 years of age, and she mentioned in a Wednesday night prayer meeting that she was going to resign from her job the next day. Uh, Stress and other things, she felt like she couldn't go on. I said to her, excuse me, Jean, could we talk after the service for a moment? She said, fine. After the service, I asked her more about what she was dealing with at work, the difficulties, the conflicts, the stress. And I said, can I share with you something I've been learning? And for the first time, I took the diagrams that we're going to walk through together, um, explained them to her briefly. And I never uh, will forget her response as we got to the last uh, diagram about finding rest for our soul. She said, I do not need to quit my job tomorrow. It was, that, it was that obvious that the problem wasn't her circumstances, but 
whether she could tap into the resources of Christ to face those circumstances. Well, as I think back during those years in the pastorate, those 19 years, I, I noticed three basic approaches to helping people. One was to simply offer pastoral care, and that's certainly valid, where someone is hurting, maybe they're grieving, going through a hard time, and you simply offer empathy, read the word, pray with that person, and, that, and that's good, that's helpful. But sometimes our problems go deeper than that, and we need more than care. We need also cure. The other thing I noticed um, was that when, when um, my fellow pastors would try to offer cure, they would use the Bible, but they would use it more like a rule book. So someone, let's say, would be depressed, and they might turn to the Bible and say, look, it says here, rejoice in the Lord always. I say, I say rejoice. You shouldn't be depressed. Then they were more depressed because they were guilty for not rejoicing, you know. And so even though it was biblical, it was dealing just with the surface issues and not with the heart. So using the Bible, even in counseling, if it's just to exhort people to change without the power source was inadequate. Does that make sense to you? And then the other, the other uh, technique I saw was simply referral. When pastors hear a, of a difficult situation, they would be intimidated by it and think, oh, that, that has to be referred to a professional because I'm not a counselor. I'm, you know, I know the word of God, but I don't know psychology, so I have to refer that person to a counselor. But I remember um, a professional Christian counselor in Montreal that was uh, trained by an evangelical counselor. And, um, and I thought, well, this is a good person to refer people to. I remember referring a woman to this counselor and she went to the counselor for a year, and I, I checked with her from time to time. You know, how's it going? She said, well, well, it's helpful. You know, but it wasn't really giving her that, that much uh, transformational change in her life. Another example of a referral was a man who came to Tennessee uh, from another state for counseling, and he, he wrote on his client intake form that he had been in counseling for 10 years, 10 years of therapy. And I said, um, well, tell me about your experience. Has it helped you? He said, well, looking back, I understand my problems more, but my life hasn't changed. Well, I knew there must be a better way, and that better way is Christ-centered, grace-oriented counseling. And so from that first time I shared these diagrams and saw uh, the, the light come on in someone's heart and mind, the Lord was starting to lead me on this journey of Christ-centered counseling in Ontario, uh, my wife and I had the privilege of discipling people with the Galatians 2.20 message, and two women in particular each experienced a real breakthrough uh, with the message of the Christ-centered life, and they were helped so much that they formed a ministry together of going and teaching other groups about the Christ-centered message, and they called um, their own ministry Earthen Vessels, not to be confused with crack pots. That's a different <laughs> ministry. Um, Earthen vessels, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So we saw that God was using this message to heal hearts, to restore marriages, to set people free. And that's why God led us to uh, emphasize this aspect of ministry in these last 15 years uh, vocationally. What I'd like to do at this time is to walk you through diagrams I, I used in the Sunday morning message here yesterday but some of you weren't here, and also I'd like to go through them a little bit more, more slowly and explain it a bit more thoroughly. And so um, I believe you have also a handout about total commitment and, and uh, 
Who Am I in Christ, which uh, I hope will be encouragement to you as well. So um, the next verse I'd like to point you to is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 23. First Thessalonians, which is easy to find, is right before 2 Thessalonians. Um, but 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 talks about three aspects of how God made you. And we believe that it's important to have an accurate model of how we're designed. You've already heard uh, Brother John talk about the old man as who you were in Adam spiritually, your spirit that was, was uh, replaced with the new man. We believe that's really important to understand these things. So 1 Thessalonians 5.23 puts it this way, And the, God of, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray your whole spirit, and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's read the next verse too. Faithful is he who calleth you, who also will do it. Hallelujah. Notice, friends, that, that God has designed you with these three dimensions. And what are they? Did you notice it? Your spirit, your soul, and your body. So the body is the part of you that relates to the coffee break. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, co- the part of you that relates to your environment, the external part of you, the obvious part, your, your physical body. But you also have an unseen dimension. And we believe that it's not just your soul, but it's your soul spirit. And so the soul involves the faculties of mind, will, and emotion. By mind, we mean your ability to think. And you're, you're certainly using that faculty quite a bit during, during these meetings. Um, but our mind is our cognitive ability. And then the will is your volitional ability, your, your ability to make decisions. So we have a free will, don't we? We have responsibility for the choices that we make, but we also have emotions, our feelings, happiness, sadness, fear, and so forth. So the soul is a seat of your personality. Each of us have a unique um, collection of mind, will, and emotions. And through the soul, you relate to others. But also notice that you also have a human spirit. And God made us in his image. And the Bible says God is spirit. And those who worship him are to worship him. How? In spirit and in truth. Romans 8 says God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit is the part of you that relates to God. And that includes the faculties of intuition, conscience, and communion. Now what what do those mean? Intuition is your ability to discern spiritual truth. Now, just like your eyes are designed by God to to receive light and to interpret reality around you, your spirit has the capacity to discern spiritual truth. It's human beings that can look up into a nice sky and say like David did, uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God. See, an astronomer can look through that, and if he or she is an unbeliever, they they may just see specks of light. They may just see stars. But the believer knows that, that design demands a designer, that creation implies a creator, that, that it's our spirit that knows that we're not a cosmic accident, but we are created in God's image. Amen? We are created in the image of God with a human spirit that has the potential to discern spiritual truth. But also we have a conscience. God is holy. God is righteous. God is judged. And he is printed in our heart, in our spirit, that discernment that when we do right, it feels good, and when we do wrong, it, it's uncomfortable. There's guilt, that subjective guilt that needs to be forgiven. So we have a conscience, and also we have the potential for communion with God. And Adam and Eve, when uh, they were 
created in innocence. They walked with God in the cool of the day. There was perfect harmony with God. And the next slide, uh, I believe, just uh, adds this dimension that Adam, before Adam and Eve sinned, they functioned according to God's design where, where their intuition, their knowledge of spiritual truth governed their mind. And, and their, their conscience, which they intuitively uh, knew that what God did was good and they could eat of all the cheese of the garden except for the one that was off limits. So their conscience guided their, their will and their communion with God gave them peace and joy emotionally. And their spirit governed their soul, their soul governed their body. And that's how God designed you and I to live. Seamlessly integrated harmony with God, with each other, with the environment. Wasn't that nice? How would you like to have lived in Eden before the fall? Wow. Well, we look forward to the millennium and we'll get a taste of that. But uh, for now, we realize that Ireland and America are quite a ways from Eden. Amen. Um, And so when you and I were born, we were not born with this condition of our spirit alive to God. We were born uh, with a need for the new birth. So we're going to proceed to talk about uh, basic spiritual needs that we have. And just see if I can get that PowerPoint to work. There we go. So when we talk about our spiritual life, we'll call this the basic Christian life. When we are born in this world, our spirit is separated from God. Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were born dead in trespasses and sins, right? Now we were born physically alive. We had mind, will, and emotions, but our spirit was dead toward God. Well, that happened way back in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When God warned Adam that if he ate the forbidden fruit, if he violated that covenant, he would surely die. And when would that happen? The very day. He said, the very day you eat of it, you will surely die. So when Adam broke that covenant, when he ate that forbidden fruit, it represented independent intuition, independent um, ethics, independent relationship. Satan uh, tempted Eve saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, deceiving her. So when that covenant was broken, Adam died spiritually that very day. Now, he went on physically living for another 900 plus years, right? But spiritually, his spirit was separated from the life of God. That's what death means, separation, okay? So you and I were born with that spiritual vacuum, that spirit that although it was there, it was separated from God. And so we have a need, don't we, of the new birth. So these spiritual blessings... God gives us when we receive Christ. So the C in the diagram represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you turn with me to John chapter 1, let me uh, give you some verses in the Gospel of John that you could use when you share this diagram. Now, um, Pastor David O'Gorman mentioned that when he was a new believer, he was given uh, the book that these diagrams were taken from. That really uh, encouraged me to hear that. But it's called Handbook to Happiness because it's meant to be a a handbook. It's meant to be a tool which requires the Holy Spirit to be using the tool. But nevertheless, it's a helpful tool. It it reminds me that in evangelism, we might use a tool. Some of you have maybe seen the bridge illustration where uh, you draw simply a chasm. All right, a chasm, this big gap in between. And so here we are on one side. Uh, lost and we're, we're sinners trying to save ourselves. We can't do it. Over here is God with his holiness and justice and mercy. And then you draw a cross between the two, bridging the chasm. Have you seen that diagram? So, so the cross of Christ represents the bridge to eternal life. 
So using that diagram, you might use that to lead someone to know Christ as Savior. These diagrams have been used around the world to teach believers how to lead someone else into the abundant life. Okay? So our Lord Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly, John 10.10. At this point, let's say you have a blank piece of paper and you draw a circle, which is the hardest part of this process is to draw a round circle and then kind of draw a pie shape. Then you can start actually putting in this information. So if you want extra credit, if you want to have a a really neat experiment, I'd invite you to to actually memorize what we're going to cover this morning and then ask God to give you someone you can share this with and say, can I share with you something I've been learning and just draw out this diagram. Maybe draw the circle ahead of time, you know, get a plate and draw a circle. But anyway, um, and then just explain it precept on precept like we're doing and watch the value and insight that your friend will receive as you share this message, all right? So when we receive Christ as Savior, then the C represents Christ. He comes in. John 1.12 is a verse that you could use. And we mentioned yesterday that he, the Lord Jesus came unto his own. He came to the Jewish people primarily, and his own received him not. But John 1.12, as many as received him, to them God gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, which were born not of blood, you can't inherit it from your parents, nor the will of the flesh, you can't achieve it in your own self-righteousness, nor the will of man, it can't be conferred on you by some organization. But this new birth is of whom? It's of God. So John 1.12, we receive Christ, and when we do, our spirit is made alive unto God, is reunited with the Holy Spirit, made alive unto God, our intuition is illumined, our conscience is cleansed, our communion is restored. Amen? And so that's the glory of our salvation. So the first blessing of the five listed here is the blessing of salvation, of deliverance from hell, of total pardon, of giving the gift of Christ's righteousness. Praise God for his wonderful salvation. Now the second blessing is what, what is it? Assurance. Assurance is being confident that Christ has saved you. I mentioned in my teenage years, I started to doubt my salvation. And I noticed that when I doubted my salvation, I didn't lose my salvation, but I lost the joy of my salvation. I lost the confidence of growing in that relationship. Because friends, if we're not sure if Christ is in our life, then it's really hard for him to be the center of our life. So we believe that assurance is a very valuable blessing that is part of our birthright as those who have received Christ as our Savior and Lord. So let's turn over to John chapter 5, and here's uh, one of my favorites about assurance. John chapter 5, verse 24, where it says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, right now, has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Wow. So, Our Lord is saying, you can be confident of this. Verily, verily, truly, truly, you can absolutely be sure that you have passed from death unto life when you have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you have the assurance of your salvation? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I wrote a book called Blessed Reassurance because um, I just noticed that as I walked people through this process, if people did not have assurance of salvation, They really stuck at that point and weren't able to go beyond 
uh, this, in this exchange process. I remember one counselee was um, the wife of an evangelist. And her, one of her problems was she just could not get the assurance of her salvation. Now, brother, when your when uh, wife um, does not have assurance and her husband is an evangelist, that's an awkward situation. But in, her, in their context, they were in a church where the minister was so determined to get people forward in the invitation that he would try to, to preach in such a way that he would get just a little bit of doubt in someone's mind and like a fisherman, he would then kind of draw them forward. If you're the least bit doubting your salvation, you better come up here and be assured. Well, instead of actually increasing people's assurance, follow me now, instead of increasing their assurance, it would lessen their assurance because it was making them base their confidence on the wording of their sinner's prayer or their emotions rather than on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when this woman walked through the counseling with me, she learned how to base her assurance on the promises of God's word and to realize that her, her salvation was based on the finished work of Christ uh, and simple childlike faith was enough to connect her to his finished work. So uh, she also learned that sometimes we feel unsaved because of the rejection and things we've been through and we need to base our salvation on, on Christ and not on our feelings. Anyway, that's what led to this, uh, this book, Blessed Reassurance, and we believe that's a very important blessing uh, to unpack. Um, the next verse I'd point you to is John chapter 6 and verse 37. And in our list of blessings here, and that's right, uh, Pastor David gave me a toy to play with here. I got a little uh, laser beam. So we've got salvation, assurance. The third is security. Security is not only being confident that I'm saved today, but believing that God will not cast me out of his family tomorrow or next month or next year. If assurance is being confident that I am born again now, security is knowing that I will not be cast out in the future or lose my salvation in the future. And we believe the Bible does teach that if we're truly born again, that we're sealed unto the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. Here John chapter 6, verse 37 puts it this way. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Isn't that wonderful? Our Lord will never kick us out of his family. Verse 39, this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. One of our friends from Montreal described how he was raised in a Muslim home in Hong Kong. And he became very interested in the gospel and, and found a New Testament and started to read the gospels. But when his father heard that he was just reading the New Testament, he kicked him out of the home and disowned him. That was even before he became a, a, a believer in Christ. He was just a, a seeker at that point. Well, as he continued his spiritual journey, he did receive Christ as his Savior and, and uh, was wonderfully saved and became a, a journalist during World War II, traveling throughout Asia and uh, Robert became a wonderful ambassador of Christ. But he described what it was like to be disowned, you know, because of his faith. But aren't you glad that when you're a child of God, he will never disown you? That you, you belong to him and you're secure in that relationship? In this world, there are so many things that make us feel unsecure or insecure. But, but in Christ, we can have that security. We're loved with an everlasting love. With love and kindness, he has drawn us. Amen. So we have salvation. We have assurance, security, and then next we have acceptance. Now, yesterday we talked about the rejection syndrome, how 
we are born with certain, we call them ultimate needs. And we listed some like we have a need for love and acceptance. We have a need for significance. Would you agree? We have a need for security and belonging and, and worth and meaning and things like that. And before the fall, all these were met through, through God and through a perfect marriage and perfect environment. But when we're born into this fallen world, instead of having those blessings, now they are needs and we're looking for those needs to be fulfilled. But instead, we're disappointed. Amen? We are disappointed in life. And, and some people that we counsel have experienced very severe forms of abandonment and rejection. But whether your experience has been mildly disappointed or extremely disappointed, we all have needs, don't we? And we see here that one of the greatest blessings of our salvation is acceptance. If you turn over with me to John chapter 10, when you receive Christ as your Savior, friend, God welcomes you. And even though you may have received and experienced rejection at a human level, when you're in Christ, you've received acceptance at a divine level. And that can heal every hurt. In John chapter 10, our Lord is talking about the wonders of his salvation. In John 10, verse 27, he says it this way. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Notice, friends, that this passage talks about all the blessings we've spoken of so far. He says, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. That's salvation. They shall never perish. That's assurance. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's security. Verse 29 says that you and I are the Father's love gift to his Son. Well, if you're the Father's love gift to his Son... Wouldn't you agree that that means that we're acceptable? When the prodigal son came home to dad, what did the father do? He sees him coming, he runs, and he embraces him. Puts the signet ring on his finger, sandals, the robe, kills the fatted calf, has a party. He's welcomed. He's not just on probation. He's welcomed. You and I are welcomed and fully accepted. But, you know, many of us believe that we're saved, but we don't really believe that God accepts us. We think we have to earn and merit and maintain his acceptance. But Ephesians 1 verse 6 puts it very clearly when it says that we have been made accepted in the beloved one. Ephesians 1 6. Think about the baptism of Christ. When he was baptized, what did the Father say right from the sky? This is my beloved Son, right? In whom I am well pleased. So if you are in Christ and Christ is accepted, what does that make you? It makes you accepted. Well, friends, when you really accept your acceptance, kind of a tongue twister, isn't it? Accept your acceptance. It's almost like you can see the pressure is off. It's like, wow, you mean I'm welcome? That's right. And that doesn't lower our standards. It doesn't make us flippant about sin. It makes us even more um, motivated to grow in that communion with God that will transform our life more and more. We're accepted. Hope that blesses your heart. It's a tremendous consolation to us. Um, the, the fifth blessing I'd like to talk to you about is we call total commitment. And total commitment is based on Romans 12, 1 and 2. We talked about it briefly yesterday. 
Let's flip over together, please, to Romans 12. And we believe that this passage and this concept is like a checkpoint in the counseling and discipleship journey. Um, In Sunday school, we talked about the cross of redemption when you're saved, the cross of consecration, which is what we're talking about here, total commitment, and then the cross of identification, which we'll continue to unpack together. And Romans 12, 1 and 2, the great passage here where Paul, speaking to believers, says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And let me just pause and say the mercies of God. That's salvation. Amen. That's assurance. That's security. That's acceptance. All these mercies motivate us to do what? To present your bodies a living sacrifice. Pause once again. Not to, not to add to your salvation, not to merit your security, but as a thank you to God, as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And notice that God sweetens the deal, so to speak, by showing us that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. Someone said, God's will for your life is what you would want if you knew all the facts. You see, he wants what's best for us. And so that's what God is asking us to do. We've confessed Christ as Lord when we were saved, but here is saying, will we open our heart for him not only to be resident, but president, to be the king of kings in our hearts and lives. I believe you have a, a page. Do you have a page called Total Commitment? Do you? Could you take a look at that with me for a minute? And that's based on the verse that we've just been looking at. And you'll notice that there's two columns. The left column, uh, you'll see the word my all the way down the list. Uh, my, my relationships, my mind, my, my, my uh, career, and so forth. And if you and I believe that these all belong to us and we really latch onto them and think that I deserve these, I own these, then we're going to be prone to fear, anxiety, and worries because, friends, we cannot guarantee that our relationships are going to be secure and controlled because life is so often beyond our control, isn't it? So what is God's radical remedy uh, to this? He wants us to to, uh, recognize that he owns our relationships. He wants us to turn the my's to the thy's and recognize that they belong to him. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is asking us to do. That's why there's these little boxes. You can take a pencil and have time with the Lord. And if, if you don't remember doing business with God at this level, that would be a wonderful thing to do maybe today is to use this as a tool to really ask God to search your heart and relinquish your relationships to him. But the right uh, column, you see the word rights there, my right to possessions, my right to have my own way. And to the extent that you and I claim and demand our rights, then to that extent, we're probably going to have anger issues. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to be um, hostile. Uh, There was a news account um, in the States uh, just about a week ago about a man who was driving along behind a woman, and the woman was driving too slow, and they got into an altercation. The man got out of his car, took a gun, and shot into the car, ended up killing a a baby in the back seat of this vehicle. A grandmother was driving and not really knowing what the problem was. And the man had a road rage incident, shot in the car, and ended up killing a child. And that's how anger can just flare up and just 
just uh, caused tremendous tragedy uh, in domestic violence and crime because anger um, can burn out of control that way. Well, rather than just trying to screw a lid on hostility, which can sometimes make it blow off like a volcano, God wants to deal with it at the root level. And how do you deal with it at the root level? God's radical remedy, once again, is to relinquish our rights to him. But didn't our Lord model this himself in Philippians 2, where he leaves the glory of heaven? Although he is God, he sets aside his rights as God, and he becomes a servant and is obedient even unto the cross. Isn't that awesome? But notice that God's will for Christ's journey was also good, acceptable, and perfect because God raised him from the dead. He's ascended, and now he has a name above every name that the name of Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So although this is radical, it's also a royal privilege to realize that when we relinquish our rights to God and we are a bondservant of God, it's a royal position because being... um, in submission to God is really the best way to live, as our Lord modeled for us. Remember when Abraham was asked of the Lord to offer Isaac on the altar? What a story. Genesis 22, I believe it was. And Abraham believes, Hebrews tells us, that if he actually went through with killing Isaac, that God would have raised Isaac from the dead because God's promises that Abraham would have a multitude of descendants was through Isaac. Well, you remember the story that Abraham actually raised the knife and then God said, stop, Abraham, and God provided a substitute. Well, that's a wonderful picture of Calvary, isn't it? Because that very Mount Moriah was actually later identified as Calvary where the greater greater Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified for you and me and became the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. But just as Abraham laid Isaac on the altar, friends, you and I also need to lay our Isaac Okay, lay our Isaac on the altar, our relationships, our rights. But just as God became Jehovah Jireh, the provider, the deliverer for Abraham, he will for you and for me too. Um, because his will for your life is good, acceptable, and perfect. This approach to counseling is really heart-focused. And uh, it's, it's uh, been used of the Lord to help with such a variety of people's problems. One man was stuck in grief. He had a brother that died unexpectedly, and he just could not get past his grief journey. And as I counseled him, I gave him this document, and I asked him to do business with God that week. And he actually put it on his dresser in in his room, and um, he didn't actually deal with this until the night before his weekly counseling session. And he said, John, I avoided that like the plague all week long but I knew I needed to to deal with this. And so I got that sheet of paper and last night I prayed through this list and and signed it and gave all these things to God. See, he was holding on to his right to have his brother live a longer life and that was causing him to be arrested in his grief journey. He had to release that right to God, realizing that God was God and we're not. So friends, uh, this is a tool that I invite you to use. And I mentioned yesterday that at that Bible college in Florida, I stood up uh, in a meeting where we were challenged to to say yes to God at this level. Now, we're not saying it's a one-time decision, but it is a wholehearted decision that we need to revisit every day, don't we? May God um, lead us on this Calvary Road journey through that kind of consecration. But what many people have never realized is that it's possible to be a new creation in your spirit and have that quality of new life, but still have a lot of old patterns causing us a lot of grief in our soul. 
And so that's what we want to look at right now in terms of these soul issues. And when we realize that life in a fallen world is disappointing, then it's not surprising when we do see uh, issues such as inferiority. Get out my magic wand here. Okay. So inferiority there. Now, notice here this is rejection. This is a fleshly Christian condition. It's not meant to be uh, a permanent condition or uh, excused, but it is very common, and therefore we need to understand what this involves. Rejection, that lack of meaningful love, the disappointments as we relate to others, typically cause these kind of emotional struggles. If you were not uh, made to feel valued and appreciated, then it shouldn't be surprising if we may have feelings of inferiority. If we weren't um, protected and, and uh, made to feel secure physically, verbally, physically, financially, then we may continue to have feelings of insecurity in life today. And then inadequacy. If we were not affirmed by um, being validated by what we do and congratulated and encouraged, then we might feel that we can never measure up, we can never be good enough, we, we just feel inadequate. Now, psychologists may talk about these symptoms, but they're not bringing in Christ as the answer to these symptoms. So observable psychology can help in terms of diagnosis, but it doesn't have the answer. We want to proceed to show how Christ is the answer. Nevertheless, it's helpful to understand some of these dynamics because if we try to compensate by self doing its own thing, S represents self, then uh, we can have guilt because real guilt is caused by real sin. But also we can have imaginary guilt where we're made to feel guilty even though we're not sinning. Some people feel guilty just by breathing the air that they're breathing like, oh, I'm not really entitled to this, you know. It's more of a false uh, feeling that they have, uh, just kind of a cloud of condemnation that they are living under, which uh, may be false. It may be the enemy accusing them or it may be just emotional damage from how they were treated growing up. Well, friends, uh, not only do we have baggage from the past, like we've been talking about, causing things like worries and doubts and fears, but also the problems of life uh, arise. And that may be conflicts in your family, in your marriage, with your children, or maybe problems with uh, people at work or financial stress or health problems. And the problems of life come upon us, and they're stressful, aren't they? And uh, those problems cause pressure. And self doesn't like that very much because we want to be happy. We want to be in control. And so self tries to, to um, react to that. And so the frustration rebounds into hostility. Do you see that? So self has uh, a tendency to say, I don't like that. And it may rebel in terms of anger. And sometimes that anger is vented and we may have a temper tantrum and, and uh, that kind of thing. And, and a temper tantrum might release some inner tension, but it doesn't exactly win friends and influence people. It usually causes quite a, a bit of a verbal insult. And so we realize that uh, venting our anger isn't healthy, so we may stuff that hostility. And if we internalize that hostility, notice how the mind tries to absorb it. So we're stuffing that frustration. We're stuffing that disappointment. We're trying to rationalize that hostility. And the mind is looking for a way of escape. What ways of escape may come our way? Well, we have all kinds of electronic entertainment today. And 
Some of that is okay, but it can become an idol or it can become sinful depending on what the nature of it is. But we may turn to, uh, to fantasy, drugs, alcohol as a way of escape. Trouble is when we get sober afterward, we're worse off than before. So that doesn't work too well. There's psychosis where we can have irrational fears or a break from reality. Uh, paranoia where we have obsessive fears and obsessive thoughts where we just can't turn our mind off like a hamster on a treadmill trying to find a way out and there is no way out. And then emotionally, uh, anxiety can get worse because we're not sure if our problems will get worse before they get better. Depression intensifies because we're thinking that self is trying everything we can do to, to do better, but we're running out of strength. You know, maybe we're taking medications, but they're not really helping or they're causing side effects. And so uh, depression and anxiety get worse. Are you, are you cheered up at this point? <clears throat> uh, well, cheer up, it gets worse. Um, also, there is a mysterious connection between your soul and your body. So the longer you're dealing with this turmoil emotionally, the more likely it's going to spill over into stress-related health problems. So if your mind is, is going, 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 it can't turn off, then you might get a, a tension headache. Or if, if there's fears that just, you just can't calm down, then you might have heart palpitations or an upset stomach. And so many times when people see this diagram, I wish I had a, a nickel, that's an American term, right? Uh, I wish I had a, a euro, how's that? Uh, for every time someone said, that's me. <laughs> because it really summarizes and visualizes the average human struggle. And so what our goal is, friends, at this point, is to identify that you can be born again with your spirit alive to God, which is great, but in the meantime, you might just be having a mean time. You may be very frustrated and defeated. It doesn't mean that you're not saved, but it means that you're walking after the flesh or you haven't discovered your new identity in Christ and you're living out of your old resources. And uh, psychiatry is trying to fix these emotional problems through medicine. And sometimes there might be a biological basis, but most of the time we see that the psychosomatic issues are really a result of the soul conflicts because we see tremendous physical as well as psychological relief when Christ becomes our very life source. Psychotherapy is primarily looking at the mind, will, and emotions and trying to fix us through that modality. But again, it may help us understand ourselves, but we need a, a supernatural solution, don't we? And that supernatural solution is a person, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So this diagram represents three aspects of the cross. It represents someone who's not only received Christ as Savior, that's what brings Christ into your spirit, but also appreciating assurance and security and acceptance. We've come to say, God, here I am. Take control of my life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, that total commitment page we're talking about. But beyond that, there, there needs to be another breakthrough because we can surrender to God, but if we're still living out of our old identity and our own strength, then those psychological problems are still going to be there. We need an exchange. And this is what the cross of identification is describing. This diagram is an illustration of Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with whom? With Christ. It's no longer I who live, but who lives in me? Christ lives in me. So the life which I now live in 
the flesh, meaning in the human body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, friends, Galatians 2.20 is valid for every born-again believer, but it may not be experiential until we have this exchange. How does this exchange occur? It's what Brother John is preaching on in Romans 6, 7, and 8. It's knowing that you've been identified with Christ. The old you was crucified and buried with him, and the new you is raised and ascended. We'll talk about that uh, in the next session that I, I give. Um, but also we see that we have a new identity. We tend to identify ourselves based on what other people have said, what um, our achievements are or are not, or how we feel. But God says that's not who you are. Who you are is that you're an in Christ person. You're holy. You're blameless. You're loved. You're a son or a daughter of God. And so this diagram represents the person who has realized that Christ can be his or her source of life. Back to Matthew 11. What did our Lord say? He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Well, when you got saved, then you got spiritual rest at that point. But then he says, I believe he's talking about discipleship here, where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You see, friends, if we are living out of our own, our own resources and all this psychological and psychosomatic turmoil is going on, do we need rest? <laughs> we sure do. But where do we need it? We need it in our soul. So he says, take my yoke upon you. The yoke, let's call it the yoke of identification, okay? Take my yoke of identification. Trust me to live my life in you and through you, and you will find rest for your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. Then he says this yoke is easy. Why is it easy? Because Christ is doing the living through us. See that? And why is this burden light? Because this grace living is not self-effort living. How does that sound? Romans 5, verse 10, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this verse and then show you a brief video. But Romans 5, verse 10 has inspired many of us who have uh, explored how Christ delivers us in this way. And in Romans 5, 10, it says it this way, If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's the gospel, praise God. But then it goes on to say, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Once again, I'll go back to the previous diagram. He says, if when we were an enemy of God and we're born that way, we come to the age of accountability, we need to be reconciled to God. It says, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Praise God for Calvary. But then he says, if God was willing to do that for you when you had no claim on his love, you were an enemy. How much more now that you're a son or a daughter of God, but what if you're living out of all this turmoil? Here's the promise, friends. Get it. How much more will he save you from this to this by his L-I-F-E? His indwelling life will save you from those psychological and spiritual conflicts. Friends, that's good news. I remember a couple that came to me uh, years ago. I got a text from them um, yesterday saying they were wishing us well. And uh, in this case, the, the man's marriage was in a crisis because uh, he was involved in pornography. And so we came in and, and we walked through this process. We didn't just deal with the sin. We dealt with the self-life, which is the root of that sin. 
He repented of his sin. He discovered the need to surrender. He discovered how he could identify with Christ and Christ living through him, could live within ethical boundaries in that area. But you know, his wife also had the same needs. She didn't have the same symptom, but she had been rejected severely growing up in another country. She was living out of that psychological baggage, that turmoil, and could not really open up to have uh, the, the fellowship with her husband that a good marriage should have. So she also discovered how to exchange her life for Christ's life. And as they got rightly aligned to God's grace and truth vertically, then they could reconcile in their marriage. Well, they did. And a couple years later, they had the first child. Now they have children. And it's wonderful to see how God has restored their individual lives in their marriage. Again, what a difference from the tennis match, you know, in my office in Montreal where, you know, I couldn't uh, see an answer for this couple to now we see that we need to look at the heart first. When we have marriage counseling, we help the husband surrender and identify with Christ. And we counsel the wife separately to have her experience Christ's life. Because notice, friends, if I can go back once again, if you do marriage counseling and the husband is living out of self-life and the wife is living out of self-life, then there's going to be tension, right? There's going to be disharmony and there's going to be mutual um, friction and conflict. But if Christ lives his life through the husband, all right, if Christ lives through the husband and Christ lives through the wife, then Christ can get along with himself. And God can give a, a more intimate, secure marriage than they've ever had. And we see that miracle happening as people are willing to walk the Calvary Road. Well, friends, um, I'd like to conclude with a short video. In the message yesterday, we talked about rejection and acceptance. And we said that the, the feelings of inferiority and so forth, inadequacy, insecurity, are typically there because of the disappointments of life. And we said that when we've not experienced the parental love and acceptance that we need, often we have a distorted view of God. And if we don't really believe that God is for us and he loves us and he accepts us in Christ, it's really difficult to radically surrender and move ahead in union with him. So we're going to see if we can get the technology to help us out here and show you a brief five-minute video that gives a tapestry of 50 verses about uh, God's love for us.